I saw Kenny last May, and you might think by his name that he's a young boy, but actually he's a happily married 35-year-old man. And he had brought his family with him to our Memorial Day family camp. They brought their little trailer into the RV campground and set up camp for the weekend. I caught up with Kenny on a Sunday afternoon that weekend and heard a little bit of his story. It turns out that he was saved at Camp Erichel as a 10-year-old boy. And when I asked him a little more about that and how it was that he came to camp, he smiled and he said, the neighbors invited me. Hmm. I thank God and praise God for Christian families who will make their home and their yard a place where kids can come out of the neighborhood and play. And yes, sometimes your yard is used and sometimes your home is used by those kids. But I thank God for Christian families who'll do that. And that family had that heart. They wanted their place to be some place where the neighbor kids could come. And then they saw to it that every kid that came was invited to some place where the gospel would be preached. And so they brought many to church with them and special events of the church, and they paid for some to go to camp. And Kenny was one of those boys. (laughs) And I thank God for a counselor who was there at camp and who was willing to converse and talk to Kenny. And I thank God for men like your own pastor, Pastor Pierpont, who come and proclaim the truth of God's word during a week of camp in the summer. And the Holy Spirit used all of that, and Kenny was converted. When Kenny got home, he told his folks that he'd like to attend a church. That was a bit of a shocker to them. And they had a church. Well, sort of. Christmas and Easter, anyway. And Kenny said, I'd like to attend a church where the people that go in carry their Bibles with them. His counselor had told him that. I thought that was pretty wise for a 21-year-old young man to say, can he look for a church just where the people that go to that church just carry their Bibles with them? Isn't that beautiful? I love that. (laughs) Well, they found a church that was like that up in rural Lapeer County, and within a few months, Kenny's mom had gotten saved too. Eventually, his dad even came to embrace Christ, and one of his siblings, a sister, did as well. And Kenny told all this to me standing in the RV park there at camp. And he pointed to the lot to the one side of him. He says, these are my in-laws. He said, we invited them along this week. They're not likely to ever go to church with us. But they thought the idea of coming to a camp where they could go fishing and play with their nieces and nephews would be sort of fun. And he had his, his three kids with him as well and his lovely wife. And he was just praying that his kids would also embrace Christ. They were just young. And he's trying to raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. <laughs> Kenny did something else while we he was there at Memorial Day Family Camp. He handed me a, a, a check. And he just said um, how glad he was that Barakal had been there when he was 10 years old. And how he wanted to help us put that new water well in at Crosscut Lodge. And he felt like it was his turn to make sure that Barakel was there for the kids in his neighborhood, 35 years old. If you're going to give a little title to the talk I'm giving, it, I would give it a two-word title. So, S-O, that, T-H-A-T. And Kenny wanted to do that so that camp would be there. Those, that family that invited Kenny to camp 
made their home the hub of the neighborhood so that there'd be an opportunity for the gospel. And you might say, well, why do we want a water well at camp? And that may seem kind of a basic question, but it's an important one. Why do we want a water well? Well, it's so that we can pipe water into the dining hall and over to the new lodge, Crosscut Lodge. Well, why do we want to do that? Well, it's so that people can brush and flush and, uh, and have showers. And it's so that in the dining hall we can have clean dishes and we'll have clean water to cook with. Well, why do we want that? Well, so that, you hear those two words? You're going to hear them a lot tonight. We want to have clean water to cook with so that we can put on nutritious meals. Well, why do you want to do that? Well, so that the kids get fed and, and our guests will have food to eat. And, well, why do you want to do that? So, well, it's so that they're not cranky all weekend or all week while they're with us. And so that when they come to chapel and, and the beauty of Christ is proclaimed and the excellencies of Jesus are talked about, that they'll, they'll, they'll have a, a ear to hear that because their stomachs aren't hungry. And why do we want that? We want that so that others, so that others will join us in worshiping this God that Hannah just sang about. I will praise you. In fact, our mission statement, and we say this a lot at Barakal, you'll hear it a lot from our lips, is to give a thoroughly biblical declaration of the glories of God. God is glorious. And we want to give just a solid, biblical, thoroughly biblical declaration of how glorious God is. With a view to gathering others who will join us in worship of this God. And that worship may look like singing, but it may look like a kind of obedience that's radical and real. A worship that looks like obedience. Joyful obedience, not sad, dutiful obedience, but joyful obedience. And we want to do all that to the glory of God. Well, Peter was a fisherman. But in his letters, he liked that phrase, so that. Scholars call it a, a hinna clause. It's a purpose clause. It's a little phrase that Peter likes that uh, shows purpose. And tonight, I thought maybe we'd just look at three of them in the book of First Peter in the first letter of Peter. So if you have your Bible, take it if you would, and let's look at three little purpose clauses that Peter gives. And maybe in the process you'll learn something about Camp Barakel and what's on our hearts and what we love. The first one I want to look at is in 1 Peter chapter 4, and it's down about verse 11. 1 Peter 4.11 and I'm reading out of the New American Standard, says, whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. And then here's this little reason clause. He says, so that. Or maybe your Bible just simply says that. It's the same idea. It's purpose. So that. In all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever, so that in all things God may be glorified. Pastor Johnson, let me tell you about him. He was concerned about the young people in his church. They, they'd had a habit of coming in late, and they'd sit in the back, and then during the service they'd be passing notes and I suppose today they'd be texting their friends. I don't know. 
And he just had a heart for them. And he felt like his effort at preaching just wasn't reaching them. He wanted to speak in such a way, as Peter says, so that God would be glorified. And he felt he wasn't connecting with those students in that church and wanted to reach out to them. So on a Sunday in August, a fellow came in, a regular in the church, named Guy, G-U-Y, not a great name, Guy Walters. When Guy Walters came to church that Sunday morning, he didn't know he was going to get a volunteer to help him corral his horses. He stood at the back after the service and talked to the 29-year-old pastor. And when pastor offered to help Guy, he didn't know, the pastor didn't know, that he was going to see an ideal place to take boys camping. Well, the next Sunday, Pastor Johnson and Guy had worked this out that the little pasture out back along the Thornapple River would be available for a place to take the boys of the church camping. And the pastor, being a creative fellow, announced the next Sunday that that Friday, any of the boys that wanted to could meet at the church and they would head off to Horse Thief Canyon. Well, the moms wanted to know, where's Horse Thief Canyon? And the pastor wasn't telling. When he brought the boys out to the pasture along the Thornapple River, it was August of 1942. This August will be 70 years since this event. Little did they know what fun was in store. Pastor Johnson became to them Uncle Johnny. And even he didn't know that this was actually the start of Camp Barakel 70 years ago this August. He wrote later, Over the weeks to follow, the trip into Horse Thief Canyon would be made often. Additions and changes would occur so that a bridge was formed across the flowing river's current. A field was leveled so that a game of baseball could be played. The ideas and ingenuity of the boys made the fire circle area a very comfortable spot. The burdock, cockleburr, and beggar's lice all gave way to open places to lay a sleeping bag and lay on your back at night and look up at the stars. He goes on to write of those early days of camping. Much that took place at Horse Thief Canyon just happened, but not everything. There was a purpose from the beginning. There was a so that in his camping ministry. A reason for being there and a reason for all the work. Very simply put, it was to expose those boys to the God who had made all of those things that we could see around us and to communicate to the boys his love as shown to us in Jesus Christ, his son. Everything we did, he writes, or did not do, <laughs> was meant to contribute to that end. First Peter 4.11 If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever. The same Uncle Johnny that was the founder of Barakel had a favorite verse. And when he wrote his book, he would be invited to sign his name in it. And often I would see him put underneath his signature another reference in this book of First Peter, which has another one of those purpose clauses in it. It's First Peter 2, 24. Look at it with me if you would. First Peter 2, 24. And he himself, that's Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to 
righteousness. I think Johnny loved this verse because it held two grand ideas of the Christian life in it. It held that idea that Christ was the one who saved, but that he didn't save us just so that we could go on living for self. He saved us so that we would grow in him and so that there would be growth. Some of you have been in church a long time and long enough to know that salvation can be thought of in three periods of time or three tenses. We often say, I was saved. And we love to hear people's testimony about when they were saved. But we also know that it can be thought of in the present tense. I am being saved. Even this day, I am being saved. I am growing. And then finally, there is that future tense, I will be saved. Those that die in the Lord are fully redeemed. That present tense, you know, is referred to as the big word sanctification. To sanctify means to consecrate it or set it apart. The Holy Spirit makes God's people holy by setting them apart from sin and from unbelief onto faith and onto righteousness. Sanctification begins when we are saved or justified. That is, when we're declared innocent before a holy God, not on the basis of our own merit, but on the basis of Christ's and Christ's alone. But then sanctification continues. It's a process of purification that goes on until glorification, when we see Jesus face to face in heaven. <laughs> I'm reminded of the story of the young boy who decided he was so tired that he would do something unusual and put himself to bed. And so he climbed the stairs and did that. But it was about 30 minutes later that his parents downstairs heard a thump and a crash, and they ran up the stairs to see what was wrong. And they found the young boy sitting on the floor next to his bed. His explanation was that he had fallen asleep too close to where he had gotten in. <laughs> if there's one part of our salvation that is more neglected, I think, in our churches, it is usually in this area of dying to sin and living to righteousness. We love to hear the story about a person's conversion, their having been saved, and we love to sing about the day when we will be with Jesus and fully saved, even from sin's presence and even from the pleasure of sin, but we don't always know how to think about the part about being saved. But yet Peter, this theme of being saved just runs throughout his letters. He's not shy at talking about it. In fact, just turn back to chapter 1 for a moment and look with me at 1 Peter 1, verse 6. Let me read a couple of these verses here. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the... Proof of your faith. And you might say, well, proof to who? The answer is partly proof to yourself. Or maybe some of your translations will say the genuineness of your faith. Being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's future tense. And though you have not seen him, you... Do you notice the next word? You would almost expect Peter to say, though you've not seen him, you believe in him. But he doesn't. He says, though you've not seen him, you love him. 
And though you don't see him now, you believe, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art thou. Do you know the next line? If ever I my Jesus, tis now. I love thee. And for thee, all the follies of sin I resign. You see, love, Peter would say, love of Christ is how you keep from falling asleep too close to where you got into the Christian life. It's love that does that. 1 Peter 2.24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, for the purpose that, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Remember Kenny, 35 years old, back up at camp, inviting unsaved relatives to come with him. What if Kenny had a different story? What if he prayed a prayer at 10 years of age and now it's 25 years later and there is no evidence in Kenny's life whatsoever? What if, what if he had no love of the church and would rather not gather with the church but would rather gather with the unregenerate? What if he never showed any interest in learning from the Scriptures? What if he never prayed, never told anyone about Christ? Well, the years of college, he just completely lived for himself, trying to get pleasure from what was created rather than from the Creator. Never showed any concern for those unsaved family members. And then let's say at age 35, instead of showing up at family camp at Camp Barakel, he dies of a drug overdose. Hmm. And yet we would want, wouldn't we, charitably, to declare that, oh, he's in heaven now because at age 10 he prayed this prayer. I don't think Peter leaves us that as an option. Living for self for 25 years after one simple act of reciting a few words. And I don't want to be pastorally unhelpful to those of you that have lost loved ones, but J.C. Ryle, who lived in the 1800s, he speaks to the living he, he does, he's not judging. He's saying to the living, Oh, please, those of you that name the name of Christ. And let me read for you what he, what, he, what he writes when he suggests that we reflect on our own death. And he uses old language when, we, when he refers to the narrow bed, a reference to the coffin. He writes, When we have carried you to your narrow bed, let us not have to hunt up stray words and scraps of religion in order to make out that you were a true believer. Let us not have to say in a hesitating way one to another, I, I trust he is happy. He talked so nicely one day, and he seemed so pleased with the chapter in the Bible on another occasion, and he liked such and such a person who is a good man. No, let 
us be able to speak decidedly as to your condition. Let us have some solid proof of your repentance, your faith, and your holiness, so that none shall be able for a moment to question your state. Depend on it. Without this, those you leave behind can feel no solid comfort about your soul. We may use the form of religion at your burial and express charitable hopes. We may meet you at the churchyard gate and say, Blessed are the dead that die in the Lord. But this will not alter your condition. If you die without conversion to God, without repentance and without faith, your funeral will only be the funeral of a lost soul. You had better never have been born. Wow. And that's why a 29-year-old pastor with a heart for the youth in his church reached out to them and invited them to spend time with him in the out-of-doors. And on their backs, looking up at the stars and speaking of the greatness of the Creator that we sang about tonight, he talked to them freely about the Lord. And he taught them this principle that he himself loved. From 1 Peter 2.24, Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree so that, purposefully, so that we might die to sin. And live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep. But now have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Amen. How did the songwriter put it? Once earthly joy I craved. Sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I see. Give what is best. This all my prayer shall be. More love, O Christ, to thee. More Love to thee. More love to thee. And I don't want to hammer this point too hard, but at the same time, I want to be faithful to convey what Peter wanted to say to us in his, in his letter. Look at those four little uh, verses that are in chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Chapter 1 of 1 Peter 13 to 16 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action, Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is that future day when we will be fully saved. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." How are we going to do that as Evangel Baptist Church? How are we going to do that as a staff at Camp Barakel? How are we going to do that as a small group, maybe as a Sunday school class? How are we going to do that as a family? <laughs> Gird up the loins of your mind for action. Keep sober in spirit. There's not going to be a billboard tomorrow on the way to work that's going to remind you to be sober in spirit. It's what we need the church for. Fix your hope completely on the grace in Christ Jesus. Look at that phrase. Fix your hope completely on the grace in Christ Jesus. There's, no, there's not a country music radio station that you listen to that's going to tell you to put your hope in Christ and in Christ alone. They don't sing, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Fix your hope completely on the grace in Christ Jesus. Or what about this phrase? As obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts. No um, 
Sports Illustrated magazine subscription, it's going to encourage you in that direction. We need each other. We need the church. There's not going to be many YouTube videos that will call you to be holy in all your conduct. We need places like Camp Barakal, where you can go once a year, occasionally, and kind of press the reset button and get away from the routines and consider again what Christ has done and remember Christ and the gospel. And then we need to come back and we need to be faithful in church and we just need to remind each other week to week and even daily that we need Christ. You know, it was in his next letter, and if you don't mind, just look briefly at Second Peter uh, chapter 1. There's a little phrase in verse 5 where he says, Second Peter 1, 5, Make every effort. Now, that for this very reason, also applying all diligence. <laughs> I like that, applying all diligence or making every effort. Words like striving and fighting and working, those are all good Bible words. They're in there. Even those of us who believe in a blood-bought and Christ-wrought, undeserved gospel grace, we don't despise effort in the Christian life. Peter doesn't despise effort. He encourages us to make every effort, to apply all diligence. Now, our work is not meritorious. We're not getting God over a barrel and saying, God, now you owe me something. It's not that at all. Gospel-loving Christians are not afraid of striving, fighting, and working. When we have no obedience to show for our gospel profession, our conduct shows we have not understood the gospel. Let me say that again. When we have no obedience to show for our gospel profession, what comes from our mouth, it shows that we haven't understood the gospel. You see, he himself, that is Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, so that, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Well, in the time we have left, I just thought it would be good for us to look at one more of Peter's little hina clauses, his little uh, telling us of his purpose. And there is one more in 1 Peter chapter 3, in verse 18, at Camp Barakel, you'll find that we keep it pretty simple. We're not complex. We believe that there are boundary lines that ought to be drawn in our Christian life. And there are, there are, just, there are doctrinal and theological and practical positions that need to be taken. And we believe that the church ought to do that. There are good fences. Fences are not bad. Good fences that demarcate the right and the wrong. But in our brief time at camp, we tend to bind ourselves at the middle. We say, what is the essence? What's the center? What's the one thing that we ought to love and know? And it's the gospel. So we keep it pretty simple at camp. We just love the gospel. And we love people like your own pastor who come and clearly proclaim the gospel. He points to Jesus, and we at camp point to Jesus, and we say, look to Jesus. In fact, if you could have everything that the world offers, if I had a magic wand that I could hand you and you could wave it and it would fix your health problems and give you perpetually good health, if you could wave it and the Dow Jones would go back up over 15,000 and everyone's whatever it is, IRA or something, would suddenly be healed, or 
I don't know, the Lions could win the Super Bowl or, you know. If you could have that magic wand or you could have Christ, we would just simply say, look to Christ, take Christ. Now, work for health, yes, and go ahead and cheer for the Lions if you must, but, uh, but love Christ and love Him more than anything else. We keep it that simple. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. I love those two categories, the just and the unjust. There's a lot of us in that category of unrighteous. There's a lot of us in the category of unjust. God alone stands in the category of the one who is righteous and just in and of himself. First, and Peter tells us, Christ suffered for sins <clears throat> once, the righteous for the unrighteous, here it is, so that he might bring us to God. Now, we love the gospel. And I remember not long ago reading a little pamphlet that looked at the gospel from various points of view, and I, I thought it helpful, and I thought I'd just share with you some of those points. Um, there's a reason that we love the gospel. There's a reason we love to work at camp. There's a reason Hannah and I are there. There's a reason we travel down here today. There's a reason why we put in water wells. There's a reason why we staff the lake with lifeguards and recruit counselors to come for the summer. There's a reason for all that. And it is the gospel. The gospel is, first of all, a plan from all eternity. The gospel is not haphazard. It was God's plan. And you can look at the gospel that way. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, the Bible says. God set it up beforehand. But you can also look at it as an event, because the Gospel is an event, and it took place in history. There really was a time and a place when Christ hung on a tree. There really were Roman soldiers and spears, and there was cursing, and there was blood, and there was darkness. There was a day, and there were six hours on that day, and Christ hung on a tree in time, and in space. So the gospel's an event. But then it's an achievement. (laughs) Through that event on the cross, something happened between God the Father and God the Son. Something was achieved by the Son's obedience. Um, Righteousness was completed. His was a perfect obedience, (laughs) even unto death. He was the perfect guilt offering. The Father's wrath really was completely turned aside. The cross achieved something. The gospel is an achievement. It's a plan from all eternity. It's an event. It's an achievement. Something was done there. And now the gospel is an offer. Isaiah said it, Come, you who don't even have money, and buy bread. It's yours to take. It's the beautiful offer of the gospel freely extended to the world. Accept it by faith. It's not by works. If it was by works, it wouldn't be good news. It wouldn't be the gospel. The gospel is a free offer. And now the gospel is an application of that achievement to the one who accepts it. Before I had any knowledge of the gospel, before I knew anything of Christ, before I knew anything of what God did in history, it happened, and now it can be applied to me in my years on this earth and to you in your years on this earth. 
By faith, I can be forgiven. I can be justified. I can have peace with God. Without this, there's no good news either. It must be applied. This is essential. And so the gospel is not only an offer, but an application of that achievement. But if we stop there, we have done a disservice to what Peter wrote in this wonderful little letter. The gospel is an offer, and it's an application of the achievement that Christ did. But if we just say to the kids in the summer, you can have your sins forgiven, they might not grasp the significance or the greatness of the gospel. We have good news. God sent His Son. Take it freely. But if we stop there, we've not really fulfilled the grand purpose for which God sent His Son. And to be truthful, some kids are almost bored with that. Oh, He wants to forgive my sins. That's fine. I'm happy, and I'm sure I'll be better with sins forgiven, and I'm sure I'll get along with my brothers and sisters better. Peter doesn't allow us to stop there. He doesn't allow us to just say, we don't any longer have to have a guilty conscience. We don't have to go to hell. We can have a better family life. That's not where 1 Peter stops. Look at it again. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that what? He might bring us to God. The beauty of the gospel is that Christ suffered to bring us to God. The great end of the gospel is that we get God. It's not just true that I get a disease-free body for the rest of eternity. I get God, the eternal God. He is the great treasure. Everything else, forgiveness, justification, sanctification, all that are just in, they're not the end. They're not the great purpose. They're the means to the end that we might be brought to God. The gospel is a means to seeing God and being satisfied in God and in treasuring God. John Newton had it right when he wrote Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright, shining as the sun, we've no less days to what? Sing his praise than when we first begun. And then there's that other verse of amazing grace that isn't as well known, in which he states it even more clearly. The earth shall soon dissolve like snow, the sun forbear to shine. But God, who called me here below, will be forever mine. God will be forever mine. That's the gospel. God, at the price of his own son, bought us for himself that he might bring us to himself. And that's why I love Peter's writings. I'm so glad for the purpose statements that Peter gives. 2.24, that, he might, that we might, so that we might, die to sin and live to righteousness. Chapter 3, verse 18, so that. He, that is Christ, might bring us to God. Chapter 4, verse 11. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Oh, God, help us to not stop short of the great purpose statements that you give us. Help us to not be content with merely having sins forgiven and not living for you. God, help us that we would think rightly that you alone are our treasure and that the beauty of the gospel is that we get you. God, thank you for purpose. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.